Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Michael Krasny. In his new book, Which Country Has the World's Best Healthcare?, bioethicist Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel profiles and compares 11 countries' healthcare systems to figure out which one works best. There's no clear winner, but he does highlight Germany, the Netherlands, Norway, and Taiwan as strong contenders. And when it comes to considering healthcare reforms in the U.S., Emmanuel believes they should emphasize primary care, and he's in favor of calls for universal coverage. In this hour, we'll talk to Emmanuel about the book, and we'll also get his take on the latest coronavirus news. That's all next on Forum. Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Which country has the world's best health care? That's both the title and the driving question of Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel's new book, in which he compares the healthcare systems of 11 different countries. Dr. Emanuel is professor of medical ethics and health policy and vice provost of global initiatives at the University of Pennsylvania and a former Obama White House health policy advisor. He also currently serves as a member of Joe Biden's coronavirus task force and has been critical of President Trump's handling of the pandemic. Here with me to talk about which country has the world's best health care and offer his take on the latest coronavirus news is Zeke Emanuel. And good to have you back with us on Forum. Welcome. Nice to be here. I always love this program. Well, I love the fact that you love it. And uh, we're going to talk about some very serious things, uh, including your book. But first, let's talk, uh, start talking about COVID-19, because over the weekend we saw a very disturbing acceleration in the number of cases uh, here in California, not so much in the northern part, in the Bay Area, but throughout the rest of the state. And the World Health Organization is talking about the virus accelerating and being particularly more dangerous, be hitting a younger demographic. How do you see it at this point? Well, we are seeing acceleration in uh, just under half the states. Um, and, you know, it was, I think, totally predictable given you know, these states like Florida, like Texas, uh, like Alabama opened up uh, before they had uh, really got control of the virus. They hadn't had 14 days of declining cases, declining hospitalizations. Uh, and then they rapidly, instead of in phases, opened up their economy. So you had salons and tattoo parlors opening up uh, rapidly, restaurants with indoor dining. Um, that was a pretty good recipe for uh, spread. So, uh, I mean, this is like, yeah, no, not, you know, not uh, that uh, unexpected. Well, what do you make of, um, and I, this is a real outlier view, but I was reading over the weekend, Dr. Uh, Matteo Bassetti, who is in charge of infectious diseases in Italy at the San Martino Hospital there. It was an article in the Sunday Telegraph. Uh, he says the virus appears to be less potent than may actually disappear on its own. This sounds like uh, something that might be coming from the White House, but he says genetic mutations uh, and, and really the changing nature of its severity have to do with social distancing and with the mutation. Um, any credence to that, or is that just really an outlier view that makes no sense to you? Well, I, I would say who knows, but you can't plan on the, you know, you don't do your public health planning and your disaster planning on the basis of, you know, a hope that it's going to be uh, it's decreasing and you would like some real genetic evidence and real epidemiological evidence. And there isn't that yet. Um, there are reasons that it might appear that things are less infectious, you know, moving outdoors, uh, for a lot of activity, uh, is probably the major reason. I mean, we should remind your listeners, there are four things that really enhance transmission. You know, one is enclosed spaces. So moving outdoors makes a big difference Two are crowds. Uh, three is um, sp spending prolonged periods of time, uh, several hours with people. And finally, forced exhalations, sneezing, coughing, yelling, uh, singing. And those are the things that increase transmission. So if you move outdoors, you probably are going to see a decrease in transition. And that might be confused with weakening of the uh, virus. 
Oh, it was a big crowd in Tulsa, uh, not quite the size of the crowd that the president had anticipated <laughs> or expected, but uh, expect a lot of transmission as a result of that rally that Trump held? Yeah, I mean, it contained all four of those items, right? I mean, it, it was an enclosed space with a big crowd for a prolonged period of time with a lot of yelling and, uh, you know, inevitably coughing and sneezing because you just have a large number of people together. Uh, that is a very bad uh, uh, form for transmission, you know, and so we would expect it. You know, people drove in from a lot of different places. If there's a super spreading event, they'll take it back to a lot of different places and it'll exacerbate the problem. Talking to Zeke Emanuel, his new book is Which Country Has the World's Best Healthcare? And uh, the four countries that really come out with the best report card from the criteria that you provide are Norway, Germany, the Netherlands, and Taiwan. Were those four countries also the best prepared for COVID-19? Uh, no, not necessarily. I mean, I would say that if you uh, look at you know who's done the best, it has to be Taiwan. And part of the reason is their healthcare system. But I, I would say that there are three main reasons Taiwan's done extraordinarily well. First, we should say, you know, it is sitting a hundred miles, less than a hundred miles off China. It has a million people working in China, and uh, it has, before the COVID nineteen, had multiple flights. So it was, you know, due for a disaster. Uh, if this happened, but it didn't have a disaster. It's had only five, less than 500 cases and only seven deaths. And that is because first, they were very suspicious after SARS in 2003, 2004 about infections arising in China. And so they prepared for it. Second, they have what's called uh, a face mask culture. They wear face masks uh, to prevent uh, transmission of viral infections for air pollution and other reasons. Um, and so they were very, uh, willing to get on to wear face masks. And third, they have this health card that links uh, everyone, their their uh, electronic health record with their visit to the doctor and the reason for their visit. And that's not quite real time, but pretty close to real time. It's in days, not weeks. And they were able to use that to identify people at high risk, both people who traveled to China, people who had respiratory symptoms, but not influenza, so that they could test them, find out who was infected and jump on those cases for isolation. And that really did facilitate their response. Um, so that's been a big success. Norway had an early outbreak at a clinic, um, but controlled it. And uh, Germany has done remarkably well, given its size and complexity. Um, also mainly protecting very vulnerable people. And so uh, they did a, a remarkably good job. The Netherlands was not so good. Speaking of very vulnerable people, Zeke, uh, you wrote an article in The Atlantic back in 2014 that was uh, quite, uh, made quite a mark, let's put it that way. And uh, it's now been referred to as an infamous article. You weren't advocating euthanasia, but you were saying that when you get to the age of 75, you don't necessarily want any medication or intervention to prolong life. Uh, and the controversy obviously arose over that because a lot of people feel they're fit. Um, we have a kind of political gerontocracy now. Uh, you think about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, <laughs> Nancy Pelosi, Mitch McConnell, and so forth. But does this mean that, for example, people should refuse ventilators when they have COVID-19 if they're 75 or older? So first of all, let's be clear. That article very clearly stated that was a personal opinion, my personal philosophy, not public policy. And I can't emphasize that enough because I've been tarred with, oh, this means he wants to knock off all those Medicare patients. That's just wrong. I've been going around in this COVID episode trying to protect people in nursing homes, protect people. I think people have a personal decision to make about ventilators, and they have a personal decision to make about how aggressively they want to be treated. God forbid they get COVID and they get very sick from COVID. And I think that is something you should address and think about prospectively and talk about with your family. Um, I know the way I would come out on that. But I think it's a personal decision. And that's, you know, you do have to ask, do you want to be DNR, do not resuscitate or not? And um, I'm not, you know, I will tell you how I think about it. And, you know, most Americans say I don't want to die on a machine. Um, and the question is, what do you as an individual want to do? Think about it, put it down on paper, talk about it with your family, make it clear to your physician so that you get treated the way you want to be treated.
Well, let's talk about treatment in general and the healthcare systems uh, comparatively, because healthcare here is not as comprehensive, obviously, as it could or should be. One comes away from your book with the feeling of what the United States really needs to do and ought to do, but we are spending nearly $4 trillion, as you point out, for a dysfunctional system and a system that has a lot of difficulties. When you think about other comparative systems, healthcare systems, uh, I think, as you put it, we can't lift and shift, but we can learn a great deal. We can learn a great deal in terms of reforming our system. What's at, not only in terms of triage, but in your judgment, what would be at the top right now and what's viable? <laughs> wow. Let's talk about the viability first. I actually think we may be at an inflection point or a transition point where more may be viable than we thought, largely because COVID has uh, revealed so many problems with our, both our public health system and our healthcare system. Um, uh, I th you have to say that at the top of the list is the issue of universal coverage. Uh, let me observe three things. First of all, we don't have universal coverage. We're at 90% or something of the population covered. Every other developed country has uh, more. China hasn't gotten there like us, but you know whether it's Taiwan or Germany or Norway or Canada or Australia or Switzerland, they've gotten to 99, 100%. We can too. This idea that we have to be satisfied with 90% is wrong. Second, part of the problem that we have is that we have a very complicated system with you know, Medicare, fee-for-service, Medicare Advantage, which is managed care plans, giving it to people. We have employer-sponsored insurance. We have Medicaid. Uh, we have the VA. Uh, we have the exchanges. It's a very complicated system, and the eligibility for each of those varies tremendously. Um, we need to simplify the system. We need to go to auto-enrollment. That would be part of simplification. Uh, other countries do that. We don't have to go to single payer where the government pays every doctor, the government pays every hospital. Uh, the Netherlands and Germany, for example, have a situation where the government collects the money but then pays private insurance companies. Individuals choose which private insurance company they want to have, and the government then gives them a payment based upon the age, sex, and health risks of the individual. That can work, and it can work very efficiently as Germany and the Netherlands show. And we could adapt that kind of system to the United States. That's one of the models. I also point out in the book, uh, my second suggestion based upon the survey is, you know, we in the United States make families pay the full cost of insuring their children. Um, and that's a big burden. It's, it's thousands of dollars. It's about 10% of a household median income. Uh, most other countries, including the Netherlands and Germany that have this private system, it's the government that pays for children. The cost of children giving them health insurance is socialized. Everyone in the country pays for it because children are viewed as an investment in the future. Um, and I think that's something else we really need to begin doing, uh, not burdening each family. We wonder why the, uh, you know, the number of children uh, in a household is going down. Well, this is one reason. It's very expensive just to provide health care uh, for kids. We're talking about, uh, you know, $100,000 to provide family coverage added above individual coverage. Um, so, you know, we need to think through how we're providing universal coverage. We can do a lot better. And by the way, if we simplified this system, the administrative costs would also go down. And those are a huge portion. Yeah, I think simplifying the system is really at the heart of your book, uh, along with covering children, not at an additional cost to parents or families uh, and ensuring universal coverage. Um, I mean, just to hit on some of the main points that you've just covered uh, also. But you mentioned the importance of negotiating drug prices and doing that globally. Yep. Uh, I think, you know, there are two parts of prices here in America that or maybe three that are really way higher than the rest of the world. And you see this one is uh, drug prices. We are four, four and a half percent of the world population in the United States, three point three hundred thirty million people out of seven point eight billion. And yet we account for between 40 and 45 percent of all drug costs in the world. That's because we give drug companies patents and then let them set the prices. And every theory as well as practice of economics tells you they will just jack, and jack up the prices as high as they can. Um, 
There's also high hospital prices for private insurance. Medicare, Medicaid, they set prices to hospitals. But for, but for private insurance, most of us get our coverage through employers. Um, they are, it's set by uh, negotiating between insurers and hospitals and hospitals at the moment have the better part of that deal because they've created local monopolies and their prices are very high. On average, over 200% of Medicare prices, that has to come down. Um, and you know, physicians, uh, nurses uh, in the United States are uh, among the highest paid uh, doctors in the world, really at the tippy top. Um, and that also is something that we need to think about. Um, you know, one of the things we need to look at is you know, unnecessary care, inefficiently delivered care, reworking what we're paying for and how much we're paying is going to be very, very important. You do have uh, a kind of sanguine view about the United States, so in terms of innovation, uh, and <laughs> I, no, I think you really read this book in detail, man. Well, I, that uh, can go on my tombstone. He actually does his homework, but uh, I was uh, actually moved by that sense of hope and optimism uh, that you attach to. Uh, innovative possibilities uh, of what the United States is able to do and what it's doing. But at the same time, what do you say about the fact that we've now got millions more unemployed and half the U.S. population relies on employee-based health care? Uh, excellent point. So, so one of my, if, if you want me to be pessimistic, here's my pessimism, which is, um, first of all, uh, given the fact that 14 states in this country, Texas, Florida, Georgia, and uh, 11 others have been implacable in their refusal to expand Medicaid, we have at this time no viable path to universal coverage. If we maintain the current system, we can't get to universal coverage because those states won't expand Medicaid and there are lots of millions of people who will fall through the cracks. Um, so if we want to expand Medicaid, we need to do something else. And by the way, more people will fall through the cracks because of what you precisely said. About 100 and before COVID, 160, 170 million Americans got their coverage through employer-sponsored insurance. Um, now, because of unemployment, you're exactly right. Tens of millions of people have lost their job and lost their employer-sponsored coverage. Uh, at least 30 million, maybe as high as 50 million will, will have lost employer-sponsored coverage if you include not just the workers, but their dependents. Uh, so the number of people covered by employer-sponsored insurance is going to drop from 160, 170 million to about 110 million. Um, and that radically shifts the ground because a lot of those, most of those people get coverage uh, through Medicaid and states, you know, are having a fiscal burden and that'll just add to the burden um, the federal government will pay. So it, it is an opportune time to rearrange the system to move Medicaid to the federal government, maybe to merge Medicaid, the exchanges, Medicare Advantage, to create a, a simpler system. So either you get coverage through employer-sponsored insurance or you get into this exchange, whether you're in Medicare or Medicaid or the exchanges or anything but employer-sponsored insurance, you go into the exchanges. And that could be a much simpler system for the country and save a lot of money. This kind of ingenuity in how we do these things, how we deliver chronic care, that's American. And that's what gives me hope, that we have a lot of creative ideas. Maybe it's the sort of old Winston Churchill line that Americans will try every solution and then eventually get to the right one uh, and adopt it wholeheartedly. I think that's what I, I believe is possible here. No, that was Churchill's uh, validation of uh, the American democratic system and how our republic yeah. has functioned well. We're talking again with Dr. Zeke Emanuel, he's Professor of Medical Ethics and Health Policy and Vice Provost of Global Initiatives at the University of Pennsylvania, also a former Obama White House Health Policy Advisor, and his new book is called Which Country Has the World's Best Healthcare? I should mention he's also an oncologist, and he'll be speaking at the Commonwealth Club online on June 24th at 12.30 p.m. That's Pacific Time. In the meantime, you can join our program if you have questions for him or if you'd like to simply join our conversation. Comments are welcome. You can give us a call right now. Toll-free number, 866-733-6786. The number again for your calls, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email. Any questions you might have for Dr. Zeke Emanuel, forum at kqed.org. And we're also... Uh, Talking about costs here, though, when we're talking about need to reform our system, there are other systems that do it much better in terms of getting costs down. And I'm also 
price to ask you about long-term care because really the Netherlands and Germany do that well. And as you said uh, earlier, or as I maybe I said, you can't lift and shift necessarily. I was just quoting you. But we can learn a lot about long-term care, can't we, from the Netherlands and Germany specifically? Well, <laughs> what they do well is that they've decided that they have to have a dedicated way of financing it. And by the way, this is different than all the other countries, uh, including Scandinavian countries, Canada, Britain, France, uh, Switzerland, which is almost every country like the United States sort of, you know, pieces it together. It's kind of a patchwork quilt and it's not very effective, efficient. Um, but the Netherlands and Germany decided to, that they were going to add on a, a uh, price tag onto their payroll tax and people would pay that and it would go into a special pool to fund long-term care that will give it a solid funding. And that is, you know, that's important for reforming the system and I think pretty, pretty good. Um, and I do think uh, we need to look at that uh, if we get, you know, another round of healthcare reform coming after the uh, election in November. Um, it is a serious problem. Uh, you know, some people talk about the silver tsunami. A lot of people aging and growing older. Um, a lot of people developing Alzheimer's and other disabilities, multiple chronic disabilities, and that requiring, you know, more care. Uh, so we're going to have to do something about that instead of just putting the burden more and more on families to provide the care or pay for the care, uh, because I don't think in a long-term basis that's tenable. I would also say that most countries we looked at are trying to encourage what's called aging in place, that is taking care of people in their own homes or their relatives' homes, not moving them into institutions, because that is extremely expensive. I'll give you an opportunity to be partisan if you like here, but what about the opportunities? Uh, seriously, uh, if uh, President Trump is reelected, I mean, the Republicans have been talking for a long time with asperity about Obamacare, but haven't come up with anything uh, that's even comparable or that's tantamount to universal health care coverage in any way. Um, pretty bleak from your perspective, if there's a reelection of President Trump? Oh, totally bleak. He said, you know, I, I uh, some of your viewers may know that I talked to him early in his administration um, actually before he actually took office uh, for two purposes. One, to have him forestall a repeal and replace that the Republicans were trying to rush through the new Congress. Uh, Paul Ryan and, uh, and Mitch McConnell were trying to rush through uh, and make it a sort of fait accompli even uh, before he got inaugurated. So I was trying to get him to tweet out, you know, no replacement with no uh, repeal without a replacement, which I did succeed in let, getting him to do. And then I tried to say, hey, look, there's a lot of ground here drug prices and a few other things where you could you could really be a leader in and transform the system. And it turned out he was not interested in that. And I think, uh, as you correctly point out, the Republicans have come up with no new ideas, uh, only punitive negative ideas like work requirements for Medicaid, uh, cutting back on open, uh, uh, the open enrollment for the exchanges, especially now when we're having so many people unemployed, repealing or going to the Supreme Court to repeal the whole bill. It's crazy. Our guest is Zeke Emanuel. His new book is Which Country Has the World's Best Healthcare? And you can join us. I invite you again to do that. If you have questions for Dr. Emanuel or if you have some thoughts about, well, our healthcare system and how it's deficient or what we may learn or what you want to learn about other healthcare systems, join us now at our toll free number. It's 866 733 6786. That's 866 733 6786. Or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email forum at kqed.org. I'm Michael Krasny. You're listening to Forum on KQED Public Radio. I'm Michael Krasny. Our guest this hour is Zeke Emanuel, Professor of Medical Ethics and Health Policy and Vice Provost of Global Initiatives at the University of Pennsylvania, also a former Obama White House Health Policy Advisor and author of a new book called Which Country Has the World's Best Healthcare? And if you want to find out about healthcare in other countries, actually, uh, Dr. Emanuel talks about 11 countries on four different continents and has a lot of uh, what I would call report card uh, assessments of how they do things in other countries. Or if you have some thoughts about how this country can do things better, we certainly want to hear your thoughts and any questions you might have. Again, you can join us toll free by phone at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email any questions you might have to forum at kqed.org. 
And let's begin with Marie. Marie, join us. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Um, I would just wanted to say that I lived in the Netherlands for about 25 years, so I experienced their healthcare system firsthand. And there's like a basic deductible that everybody pays. And if you are very, very low income, that gets re, uh, some kind of uh, rearranged at the end of the year, and you get some of that money back if you haven't. If you haven't used your healthcare system, you get that, some of that money back. So um, I found that to be very, very uh, helpful. Um, the uh, monthly premiums are relatively low. I think it was about 150 euro per month. And I could see my, my GP every week or not. Um, and I think that the United States could really benefit from some kind of uh, system that reflects or mirrors the, nether, the, the Dutch system. Yeah, thank you for that, Marie. Uh, let me go to you on this, Dr. Emanuel. I mean, she's talking about the system in Holland and the Netherlands, uh, but other systems like that seem to work, but they work, of course, for smaller countries, much smaller countries. Well, <laughs> yes and no. I mean, Germany at 80 million is not exactly a small country. Uh, France with uh, 60 plus million people is not a small country. Uh, so I think you can uh, recognize that uh, these kind of structures can work uh, for larger countries with, you know, it, it is true, we're four times the size of Germany, but we're not 10 times the size of Germany. And we can learn a lot about how they uh, do things, simple, sim have a simple system for enrollment, do automatic enrollment. Uh, so if people don't actually select a health plan or a health insurer, they actually get enrolled. Um, we can also learn from this, having low, low uh, premiums, low deductibles, low co-pays can be very efficient. There are even many countries, you know, uh, Britain, Canada, Australia, when it comes to public hospitals, you don't pay anything at the point of care. So, I mean, we, we have to look at these countries and try to figure out what is useful. Um, and I think uh, a lot of them have have uh, approaches that we find very desirable. So for example, in Germany, uh, someone can choose any doctor, any hospital in the country and go to them, right? We don't have that much freedom in the United States. Similarly, in the Netherlands, uh, you've got free choice of primary care doctor. I mean, so we, we could have some big advantages if we wanted. Well, in Germany, they also have uh, not, not only universal coverage, they have mandatory basic private insurance. And in Norway, for example, one of the other four countries that you single out as being particularly effective, there's single payer, but with limited public health insurance. Yeah, uh, so private health insurance, you mean? Private yes. health, yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, Norway is, is a Scandinavian country, and just by dint of paying into the long-term uh, uh, programs for pension and other things, you get health care. And it's kind of like Medicare in that regard. You're 65 and older, you get it in this country. And the same thing works in Norway. Um, and they pay for regional health authorities, which then pay hospitals um, and work with hospitals to control costs. And they give money to the local government and the local government then funds uh, the, the, the primary care doctors, the, the specialists work at the hospitals. Um, so these are possible. I will also say that even countries like the Netherlands and Germany that have uh, private health insurers, um, they have budgets and they make sure that they don't exceed the budget. That's one way they do cost control. And it is, you know, countries that don't have a budget like the United States, Switzerland and France tend to be on the high end of spending um, uh, per person. And countries that have budgets tend to be much lower. In fact, um, getting back for a minute just to Taiwan, the care is paid for there by a simple public authority. That's, that's uh, comparable in the UK as well, right? Yeah, they have it, 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 the Ministry of Health and they have, uh, you know, it, it's like Canada, like Britain, like Norway in that regard, that you give the money to the Ministry of Health and then they allocate it to the healthcare providers. Uh, whether hospitals or doctors or other parts of the system. The, the remarkable thing about Taiwan is it, it's got very high satisfaction, very low cost, but the hospitals are, um, as someone described them, uh, more like uh, graduate student dorms than they are like uh, what we're used to. Um, so 
you know, but even if you upgraded the hospitals, it wouldn't be that expensive. Uh, they are remarkably cheap and they do control prices pretty effectively so that if doctors have more billings than they were anticipated in the quarter, they actually ratchet down how much they're going to pay for a doc to doctors each uh, uh, for their visits. Um, and this adjustment, this sort of uh, uh, th thermometer adjustment is something that is true in Germany as well. And we go to more of your calls. Let me get Tom on next. Tom, thanks for waiting. Join us. Hello. Good morning. Morning. Yes. Um, I'm just going to preface my question by saying that I'm a registered nurse, worked for 25 years in the Kaiser system, uh, which is an interesting system in that it's um, not a fee-for-service model. Uh, there's not a big incentive to do unnecessary procedures. Um, and I've seen the human cost of our healthcare system on our elderly um, from, you know, old people who run out of their prescriptions by August and September, only to spend many days in the ER in between October and December. Um, it's just, it's very wasteful. Um, you're preaching to the choir. I understand you. <laughs> and uh, so, um, but we live in a democracy that is maybe on life support in some degree, but we live in a democracy. We have all these people with voter registration cards on the other side of the aisle that are adamantly opposed to any kind of change because of their political loyalties. What do you recommend we, we say when we engage in discussions with our family, our friends, our coworkers who uh, are allergic to the idea of expanding healthcare or anything other than the system that we have that's so broken. <laughs> so you're getting to the practicality and, and, you know, when political scientists, and I do have a degree in political science, talk about practicality, you need three things that are going to make uh, us change and institute legislation in the United States. It tends to be recognition of a problem. I think we do recognize coverage has to be universal in this country and we have to get costs under control. I don't think there's a problem there. Affordability, as you've pointed out, Everyone sees this as a huge problem. And actually, before COVID, it was like the number one or two problem people identified for the upcoming election. Second, you need an agreed upon solution. Um, in some areas, we don't have that agreed upon solution, and that's a problem. And third, you need some catalytic event that's going to bring this solution to the top of the policy agenda and ram it through. It, for Medicare and Medicare, that turned out to be the combination of the assassination of President Kennedy and the election of Lyndon Johnson in the landslide. And then he was able to push through Medicare and Medicaid. Clearly, the uh, recession and the election of uh, President Obama pushing through the Affordable Care Act. I think we might have that situation with COVID. Um, and a lot of people like uh, uh, many of the Black Lives Matter uh, demonstrations that we need basic safety net that isn't so uh, holy and so inadequate in this country. And that basic safety net has to include universal coverage that is affordable, where insured people are not afraid to use their coverage. Um, and I think that is something that is rising to the top of the agenda. Um, and, and you see a lot of people who are moving from the Trump camp over. This is part of what they're, they're feeling, part of what they're pushing for is, you know, I want security for my family. I want security for my children. And part of that security is things like, you know, universal health care coverage that's affordable. It's things like uh, uh, sick leave that every worker can get. It's things like, uh, you know, pre-K and uh, uh, free college tuition. So I think you're beginning to see pushes in that direction. Um, it's parental leave when they have a new baby or a sick relative. So I think you're beginning to see that and a coalescing around that. Will th this 2020 election be that watershed moment that, you know, we get a, a big repudiation of the Republican approach? We'll see. Are you also talking about mental health in this picture, the inclusivity of mental health? So, uh, you know, I, 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 it, mental health, I, I mentioned in the book, and, and you're right for bringing it up, mental health is one of those areas that almost every country does badly at. And, and I have a, a story in the book that sort of summarizes it. When we went to Switzerland in Geneva, um, we were talking about mental health with the head of the health program in Geneva. And he said, oh, yes, yes, mental health. 
we have the mental hospital over there, and he's pointing to the border with France. He says, right near the, uh, the French border, right next to the prison. And it tells you everything you need to know about how they view mental health. But it's interesting that some places are changing on mental health. There's a, a widespread understanding we're doing a bad job around the world and that it's important, not just for the mental health reason, which in and of itself is really important, but because it compounds problems around, you know, whether it's cancer care or diabetes care or heart disease care, you know, people who are depressed or anxious, it's hard to get them to do the kind of self-management they need to do for these chronic conditions. And so providing them mental health actually can be a way of actually lowering their healthcare costs because they can take care of these other chronic conditions. And ironically, the United States has probably more innovative programs in this area. No country has solved this problem, as we point out in the book, but there are a number of countries with innovations. We're one of them. The Netherlands also, primary care doctors are responsible for the first wave of um, uh, first element of taking care of mental health. And 80%, more than 80% of them have a nurse who works in the primary care office who works on mental health issues. Uh, and you know, visits to the primary care doctor for mental health issues have skyrocketed in the Netherlands. So the U.S. and Netherlands are the most innovative on this issue of mental health. And here is a caller, Steve from Walnut Creek. Joining us, Steve, you're on. Good morning. Yeah, hi. Thanks for taking my call, um, Dr. Emanuel. My question is: uh, You had mentioned where hospitals that have uh, monopolized some markets may be charging upwards of 200% of Medicare. And uh, we see in the, this trend in the United States, and I'd like to hear if you see this in any other countries where private equity firms are buying up physician practices, um, particularly emergency practices, um, monopolizing, uh, in, in some cases, uh, the delivery in whole states or regions of the country, and uh, charging upwards of 400% of Medicare. Um, what do you think about that trend, and, and what are you seeing in other parts of the world? Steve, thanks for the question. Uh, it is a trend, isn't it, Zeke? He's right. It is a trend, and it's super scary because they're not in it for providing high quality uh, They're in care it for profit, period. Yeah. yeah, they are in it for a profit, and they're in it for a profit over a relatively short time horizon. Um, and, you know, a lot of that big hullabaloo we had just before COVID over surprise medical billing, which is a serious problem in this country, uh, was driven by private equity. And uh, uh, so I think... Uh, it is a serious problem, and it's we have to make it such that there's no big advantage for doing those kind of deals just to pump up local monopolies, as you put it. And I think that's a absolutely essential element. Um, and you know, there are various things you can do to thwart surprise medical billing by saying, well, if you sorry your emergency room doctors, you don't sign with the insurer for working in that hospital. Um, you don't get to set the price that you get the average price that the hospital pays in the local market. Um, and there are other ways of restricting uh, the advantage that uh, uh, these uh, or, or the attempt to exploit the local monopoly that uh, uh, these companies have done. And by the way, big health systems have done the same thing. And uh, uh, that's why, on average, as you point out, their uh, prices for private insurers can be double or even more for uh, Medicare, uh, double uh, for uh, services. Um, so I think we have to stop those local monopolies exploiting that um, loophole, as it were, and really either enforce the antitrust laws or there are other creative ways of making the prices relative to the market concentration. Yeah, let me thank Steve for that call and go right to a, a question that a listener emails to us uh, that dovetails a bit. Greg says, for-profit medical care seems more focused on treating chronic diseases like obesity, diabetes, asthma, or arthritis while doing little to prevent them. How can this be addressed? Oy. <laughs> First of all, we do need to treat them, and we need to treat them uh, more proactively. And I think your caller's exactly right. There's, there's different kinds of prevention. So one type of prevention is we prevent people from getting obese. We prevent people from getting heart disease. We prevent people from getting diabetes. Um, that's really important. That tends not to be the medical problem. That tends to be really uh, a public health issues like encouraging better nutrition, exercise, um, not smoking. Um, those are really important. And one of the reasons we 
should have a good CDC is to promote those kind of public health measures. Um, but nonetheless, even when you have a disease like diabetes or like heart disease, what you have to do is prevent is, is to actually encourage prevention, preventing people from having having exacerbations of their health problems, from getting so sick from heart disease or say diabetes where their blood sugars are out of control that they need the hospital. That'll keep the costs down. It'll keep people healthier. You know, just having people with diabetes exercise can lower their need for insulin, lower their complications. And, and those are important. And yes, that's the kind of prevention we need to encourage. And the way to encourage that is not to pay people for every time they admit someone to the hospital or every time they see them, but to say, here's a pot of money. Here's a capitation. You're going to have this amount of money to manage these patients and keeping them healthy, keeping them not using as much medical services like the emergency room or the hospital. That's how you make your money. That'll encourage uh, doctors and hospitals and others to try to keep people healthy and not uh, just treat them when they get sick and bandage them up, as it were. Yeah, related question from Beth, who emails, what role does access to healthy, affordable food and safe housing play in preventing health issues? Preeminent role, I think, is the answer, isn't it, Zeke? Well, you're absolutely, absolutely right. Um, you know, uh, in terms of changing, you know, health outcomes like life expectancy, uh, Healthcare interventions, going to the hospital and other things are way down the list in terms of how much they contribute. Much higher, you know, if, they're, if you have to do anything, there are four things to do. One is to uh, eat well and not so much processed food, not so much empty sugar calories. Two is to exercise regularly. Three is to not smoke. And four is to use your seatbelt and basically avoid a, try to avoid a lot of accidents uh, in your life. Um, and those are, you know, the, they sound simple, but they have to become habits. They have to become things we do routinely. And that's critical uh, and, and would be very, very important if we could get the entire population to do it. But as you know, we have a high obesity rate and uh, uh, not everyone gets the kind of exercise they should. We have declined our smoking, although that's plateaued, increasing the cost of cigarettes again uh, would uh, further drop our smoking rates, and that's important. Talking with Zeke Emanuel, his new book is Which Country Has the World's Best Healthcare? And he'll be speaking at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco online on June 24th at 12.30 p.m. Pacific time. And here's Kimberly who says, those of us who have work in conjunction with commercial health insurers know the shortcomings of this broken system. Patients become angry when they learn they must pay a substantial portion of their care out of pocket, yet they hold on to the faulty notion that insurance companies will take care of them. Do you see this view of commercial insurance changing entirely? Uh, <laughs> let me just say, we, ha we Americans do have a very complicated and contradictory view of insurance companies. I'm not sure I understand it, and maybe there's someone way smarter than I am who can explain it. On the one hand, one of the biggest applause lines for any politician is to bash insurance companies, right, as rapacious and muddy-grubbing, although we should say that many of them are not for profit. On the other hand, as polling around Medicare for All suggests, that when you tell people who support Medicare for All in theory, and then you say, well, you're going to have to give up your private insurance. Oh, no. Then popularity of Medicare for All drops tremendously, suggesting people really want to retain their private insurance. So it seems contradictory. I don't understand it. And um, I think, you know, you're right. I, it, it just doesn't make sense. But if you want to be practical about it, I think you got to be practical. We're not going to get rid of the insurance company. So how can we make a system that is really effective, even with them as part of the system. And that's why I, th I have looked to the Netherlands and Germany as uh, examples of places that use private insurance and yet have uh, uh, good choice, uh, low cost at the point of care, um, and reasonably reasonable prices. And so I think there is a way of trying to thread that needle of the contradictory American views of insurance companies. I'm going to go to more calls in just a moment, but first a question from Rosie. She says, please have your guests discuss the high maternal death rate, especially of black women in the U.S. as compared to the rate in other countries. 
outrageous. Uh, there's nothing short of outrageous. I, uh, I have another paper that's going to be coming out uh, in the future in JAMA IM that looks at one of the elements it looks at is, is the maternal mortality of the United States compared to other countries. And we are way off the charts. Forget just African-American women. It's true for all women in America. It turns out to be even true for rich white women in America. And you in California have undertaken major initiatives to try to improve maternal mortality and made a big impact. I should say a big impact. Nonetheless, even with that big impact, we have a higher rate than I think uh, California has a higher rate than I think almost every country in Europe. Um, so while California has made tremendous progress on this, and I don't want to undercut this, and especially compared to the rest of the country, um, we're still way high. Uh, and yes, we need better uh, prenatal care. We need better postnatal care because a lot of these maternal deaths, they don't happen in the hospital. They happen when you send someone home without the right support structure, without a nurse visiting them at home and helping them out through all the changes that are happening while just after you're having a baby, trying to breastfeed, ha not having enough sleep, trying to you know juggle all those things. It's helpful to have a soothing hand, a supporting hand, a nurse coming and helping you, even if you're well off in this country. Um, and other countries do those kind of things. And we need to change how we're dealing with uh, uh, maternity care. Um, and I think part of the problem is we break it up. Once you deliver, we sort of pass it off. And you know we often focus on the child and forget about the mother. We got to focus on both of them. And I think there are interventions that are viable in that space. And let me bring another caller on. Jay, that's you. Thanks for waiting. Join us. Just a quick observation. It was eye-opening for me. Some years ago, I was traveling in Italy. I was alone. And I got quite ill. I had some respiratory problem, and I was in trouble. All I could think to do was to call the desk, and I did. And my surprise, within an hour, a doctor arrived, uh, and he saw me, treated me. The the, the um the desk sent someone to the pharmacy to pick up a prescription, and within two days, I felt better, and they had, they had added $95 to my bill. I don't understand all the machinations of how they did that, but I realized then that that would not have even happened to me in the United States, and that would, there's something we could be doing better than we're doing now. Yeah, that's an interesting story Jay has to tell, and uh, I have to chime in here. Uh, when I was in Italy a number of years ago, my wife got a coronal abrasion, and the result was that uh, she went to the Oculista, this is in Venice, uh, prescribed something, and there was no charge for it at all. Um, and what was prescribed turned out to be just what uh, the ophthalmologist here would have prescribed. So to, to think about this in terms of just the efficacy and the lack of payment, is really remarkable when we think of our own system and how much that just doesn't just doesn't jibe. Uh, I agree with you. And what's funny is I've heard that story about Italy from numerous people that, you know, they get sick on a vacation, someone comes and helps them. And either there's no charge, including people who've had heart attacks and zero charge, and they're shocked. And yes, this happens in a lot of other countries. Uh, where you get a very low charge to use the healthcare system. And they, and it's part because they think this is what it means to treat people well. This is what people should get is, you know, healthcare. They shouldn't, we shouldn't have such high deductibles and high co-pays that people are afraid to use the system. At the point of service, it should be very low cost. And you should, we should have an infrastructure that has the bandwidth to accept the next case at a very low price. And you turn out to be the next case um, and yes, we need to redesign our system because right now our system is not designed for the next case. The way we control prices or costs in the United States is somewhat nasty, right? We control them by trying to dissuade you from using the system. And we control that by when the doctor orders something, having all this, you know, you have to call the insurance company to get permission to order the MRI or to order the cancer chemotherapy drugs. Why? Well, MRIs are super expensive. Cancer chemotherapy drugs are super expensive. In a lot of other countries, you know, the MRI is not so expensive. It may be a tenth the cost of what it is in the United States. So you have a very different view of how to manage patients. 
drug costs. Similarly, cancer chemotherapies will be much cheaper than they are in the United States. So it creates a different view. What we have done is created a bunch of roadblocks to using medical care. Other countries view it as something people are entitled to and that people should get when they're sick and that money should, you know, you should pay money as a fixed cost to the hospital just to do all the care they need to do. And that's a very different attitude. And this is one of the things we can learn from other countries. Zeke, we have a little time left, but I'd like uh, to pose a question that a listener named me opposes to you. And that is, what does Dr. Emanuel think of incremental expansion of Medicare by lowering the age of eligibility to 60, 55, et cetera, over a period of years? <laughs> um, incremental, you know, part of the problem is uh, going back to the first thing I said, which is, yes, that that is the way we do things by this incremental approach, but it has this consequences of making the system more complicated and problematic. Um, so while if that's the only way we can do it, I'm all for it. If, but it's not my preferred method for doing it. And I would like to reform the system to get to universal coverage. And by the way, let's do it in a way that simplifies the system so we don't have people falling between the cracks. Um, so that, that would be, that's my reaction in general to the notion of, um, of trying to, you know, extend the Medicare. It's not, remember, it's not the main group, you know, 60 year olds who are uninsured. Keeps coming back to universal coverage, simplification, and more emphasis on primary care. And you got so, it. It's always good to have you with us. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Great questions. That's Zeke Emanuel. He's professor of medical ethics and health policy and vice provost of global initiatives at University of Pennsylvania. Also a former Obama White House health policy advisor. His new book again is Which Country Has the World's Best Health Care? We have another hour of forum and stay tuned for that. We're going to talk about policing next. I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.